Recorded live. Good evening. Welcome to Elvis Targeted Individual Community Call. It's Thursday, February 25th, 2016. So um, I covered a little bit of this a couple of nights um, last week on my show, um, but it, the recording wasn't going. And I had saw this um, letter from the uh, from Apple CEO Tim Cook uh, to his customers about this uh, Federal Bureau of Investigation wanting them to build a backdoor into their iOS uh, systems, in particular the iPhones. It has to do with the San Bernardino um, shooting by the couple. And one of the um, the perps had an um, iPhone. So my, my theory on this one, number one, is that people who are going to generally do things like that, maybe they don't care, but chances are they're going to use burner phones. So that one phone is clean and another phone has everything that they're never going to find. Most criminals use burner phones. Most clandestine agencies use burner phones so you can't track them. Kind of like personal and, and you know, overt and covert, so to speak. So I doubt you're going to find too much stuff. Like they're going to leave a whole litany of information, you know, I doubt it. Number two, why did they erase all, or why did they attempt to do these passwords? Why didn't they call Apple immediately and say, we, got, we have possession of a phone, you need to help us, you know, jailbreak it, so to speak. And Apple said that they could have done it, but they were fucking around with the phone, and then what happened was they got locked out, and then they tried to reset the password, and once they reset that, then you can't get any access to it. Number two, you have the National Security Agency. If that act in San Bernardino was considered an act of terrorism, then the Department of Defense apparently has been given authorization to go on American soil to fight terrorism, which means then you could utilize the services of the National Security Agency. The National Security Agency has plenty of gizmos and gadgets and other means by which to get information. They could build maps of people. Profiles. They could use their quantum quadrillion, you know, whatever bits per second. I think China's at 300 quadrillion bits per second, and I think that's been broken by another person. So you're talking about quantum levels of computation that if you, if you were to do it in milliseconds, you'd be coming up with all sorts of random whatevers. May take a long time, may not. I don't know. This stuff that they want Apple to do is not just about breaking into that one one shooter's phone. It's about getting access to everything. So they say, well, why not give them? Well, the point of the argument is, you know, most people don't get it. I guess they think that when they buy a cell phone, that Samsung or that Apple or that BlackBerry, that your phone is just individually designed just for you. They don't look at it like you can go to the store and get a, a Microsoft Office. The software is the same. Everybody has, most people who work anywhere or have, uh, you know, desktops at home or, or laptops, they usually get a version of Office, Microsoft Office. Okay, Microsoft Office does not create an individualized program 
for each person who buys it. You may have a key that activates it so that they know it's specific to you. But ultimately, the software is going to be the same. So an Apple phone, a Samsung phone, a BlackBerry, a Nokia, the software is the same. If you get the keys to break into the back doors of one phone, you have the master key to break into all phones. You, you, you not only violate the privacy of an individual customer who hasn't done anything wrong, but you also, like he was saying, Mr. Cook, is that you're, 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 you're making everything insecure, not secure. Once you have the, the keys to the kingdom, the master key that opens everything, or anyone, I should say, then anybody is going to try to get access to that. They say, oh, no, only the people at the FBI will have it. And only under certain circumstances, they would use it. But what people don't understand is, in this world today, people come and go from jobs. You may not work at the FBI as a career person. You may be just trying to get that on your resume so you can work for a private security firm for three times the money. But guess what you take with you? You take the keys to that kingdom and access with you to the civilian population. Oh, look it. I have these keys. Now that private security firm has that access. And then someone who works there doesn't stay with that company, and they take that information with them. Maybe they sell it on the black market. Now, all of a sudden, that one key that was supposed to be specific to the Federal Bureau of Investigation so that they can get into the back doors is now in the hands of how many people? And like he said, a lot of people on their smartphones do their finances. They have all their private information, their emails, their text messages, their, their business. Like BlackBerry is considered a business phone. All your contacts. It's not about that one person, the way the FBI lies and they corrupt linguistic and they twist words and they manipulate linguistics. Oh, we just want to get into that one phone. So build us a back door to get into that one phone. But you have to understand that it's not about one phone. It's about a software program that is built into all the phones so that it operates. Once you get the key to break into that one phone, you have the key to break into every single phone that runs on that software. Like I say, think about it like Microsoft Office. When you go to the store to buy it or when you go to work to use it, it is not individually customized just to you. It is a software program that you just upload into your system. Everybody has it. Millions of people globally. It's not about getting into one. Once you figure out how to break through the doors of Office, Microsoft Office, you now have access to anybody who's using Office on a desktop or, you know, or a laptop that's online, which they already have done. 
Look at all the security breaches that have transpired from financial institutions to retail, even to medical records have all been stolen. How many times did you have your credit card changed? Well, mine was first through Target, and then it got changed again when my financial institution was hacked. Now, everybody said, well, Target, I don't want to shop there because they're insecure. But I have to give Target and Chase Manhattan a little bit of credit because what you don't know is that Target was not the only retail outlet with, and Home Depot and I think it was one other company. They just stepped up to the plate to say that they had been hacked. What the majority of Americans don't understand is when that Target hack happened, there were several retail outlets during that holiday season that were hacked. Only those companies did not bother stepping up to the plate and admitting that they had been compromised. Nor did they tell their customers. The same thing with Chase. When Chase said we were hacked, what you don't realize was that nine other financial institutions were also hacked in the same way. Only those financial institutions did not tell their customers because it would have created absolute pandemonium chaos. Do your homework, people. It's all out there. So then nobody wanted to shop at Target, but in reality, Target was the only one who was honest enough to tell their customers. We don't know what those other 14, I think it was 14 or 19 retail outlets. I think Saks Avenue came up to step up to the plate. So we don't know if it was, you know, if it was Walmart that was also hit, if Sears or Penny's or Macy's or, you know, any, any one of these Best Buys or whatever. None of those people ever had to admit that they had a security breach. So nobody wanted to go to Target, but in reality, you should be more concerned about the other 14 or 19 retail outlets that did not bother telling their customers that they had been breached like Target. And you're out there blissfully spending with your ignorance, sliding your cart all over the place. What about the financial institutions? It's all source material. You just have to find it. So now you want to give them the backdoor keys because what they're doing is it's called end-to-end encryption. From the point you start to the point you reach is all encrypted. Government doesn't like that because they can't hack it and they can't listen in, which they're not supposed to do anyway unless they have a warrant, unless there's probable cause. But see, they don't care about probable cause or the Constitution. They just want an easy way in so that they can access anybody, anytime, whenever they want. But you're not really looking for terrorists. You're looking for intellectual property to build profiles on people, to see who you can target, to get them to do what you want, to vote the way you want, to blackmail into doing something that you want. I've been saying this repeatedly, which Jeremy Scahill said the last time, he, this was during the drone summit, and he talked about this whole concept that when Dennis Kucinich left Congress, 
because they changed his voting district from in, in Ohio. He said, everything in this country is up for the auction of the assassin. When you have information, it becomes power. You can assassinate anybody. Not physically, but the, we call them the slow kills as tar- targets. It's, a, it's an all-out assault on character, credibility. Assassination. Destruction of life. Relationships. But there haven't been too many corporations that have stepped up to the plate. You know, I managed to finally get through, I guess, to the corporate offices because I was, ha- I, you know, was having all kinds of issues. And one of them was that I had a history of calling Apple, not because I was blaming Apple, I told them, but because it was a progressive history of how many attacks I was taking from the outside. And that I was hoping that if they can prove that I was being hacked, then they could use their money and their power to fight for people like me who don't have the money to fight back. And so every time I talked to them, I said, it's not about the Apple product. It's about what they're doing to try to access your product, to manipulate, to hack, to disrupt, degrade, deny me the ability to use your Apple product. And that I'm not blaming Apple, per se, But if they could prove that this is transpiring, then that gives them, me, the material evidence I need so I can get a cease and desist. But it would be even better if a corporation like Apple would step up to the plate and fight for us about privacy and security. So when the Federal Bureau of Investigation is over there, and they fucked up, Because one, more than likely, they had a working relationship with all these tech companies up in Silicon Valley. And they would help them out, you know, intermittently. But the FBI, because of their hubris and arrogance and ego, decides to go all public about how Apple's not this and Apple's not that. And then they go behind Apple's back and then they go get a court order. So I think when I play the interview with uh, Tim Cook... He makes that reference. You know, you thought it was your friend, and then all of a sudden they kind of stab you in the back. You're willing to work with them, and then they, they do some shit like, shady shit like that. What he didn't realize was they was always shady. You was just hoping that they weren't until they stabbed you in the back, and now you know how shady they really are. It's like all these perps out there. Wait until your time comes, and it's going to be worse for you than it was for a target because you have some knowledge. These people are not loyal to anyone or anything. So anyway, I'm glad that I, I, you know, and and I'm sure there's, and they have plenty, and he even makes reference to military and law enforcement are writing him letters saying, do not give the government the keys. So it's not like it's a key to open one door. It's the master key that opens hundreds of millions of devices. And if they make Apple do it, then they're going to make Google Nexus do it. They're going to make Samsung do it. 
They're going to make, you know, Nokia do it. They're going to make BlackBerry do it. And it's not just going to be about phones. Then it's going to be about computers. And then it's going to be about, you know, your, your, your Internet boxes. And it never fucking ends. Because people like this just keep wanting more and more control over so they can get the information. So we got someone who's step, we got a corporation that's stepping up to the plate. And that, that's better than nothing, you know? And I hear Google is thinking, you know, they're starting to back them up. So you have people like Google apparently that that's stepping up. Because this is this is not just this is not just about your privacy and the private information that you carry on your PDA, your cell phone, your iPad, etc. It's also about security and who has access to those keys and how they abuse that access. And nobody knows the answer to that question better than a victim of targeting. Because like they give the access to our information, they have just breached security for me. They allow them to access my computer because they give them skills or tools or passwords to access. Now, those people have been trained a skill and a means by which to access. Are they loyal to the Constitution? Well, obviously not if they can't even respect my constitutionally protected rights and liberties. So you're going to give that people like that who become obsessed with power or you give them a little bit of power and look how abusive they become. This is your civilian perpetrator community and some of them who are allowed cyber access. So why the hell would you want a corporation to write code for a backdoor access that ultimately might get in the hands of these radicalized extremist civilians? That's bullshit. That's absolute fundamental bullshit. Nobody knows about the abuse of when people gain access better than a victim of targeting. These fucking domestic terrorists have been given criminal, illegal access to information none of them have the right to have access to. And they took that information and they exploited human beings. And now you want a corporation to write a backdoor to break encryption. And where is it going to end up? Probably in the hands of these goddamn that I deal with on a daily fucking basis. So he's absolutely correct when he says this is about security of this nation. And nobody knows about having your personal security so ever exploited than me, a target. So I'm ever grateful to one corporation 
and hopefully more Silicon Valley corporations will step up to the plate and tell the government, go fuck yourselves. We're not giving you that information. And if you want it that bad, go to your fucking friends in the NSA because they don't give a shit about the Constitution and they'll just rush on over everything anyway. Tell your fucking friends over there to figure it out. So you have to understand about this thing. It's not about just opening one phone. It's like a key to open everything. That's why everybody's got to step up for their own security and their own privacy. It's not about what you think. Well, if you're not doing anything wrong, you don't have anything to hide. What difference does it make? Shut the fuck up. Because half you people go online. And pay your bills. And how secure is that? They're trying to do something to make it secure for us to feel comfortable enough to when we log into our financial institution, it's end-to-end encryption. From where you start to where you go to and vice versa. Makes it harder for the thieves and the hackers, the bad hackers, to gain access. Why would you want them to tell these corporations to give them the keys to break that end-to-end encryption? Because you're looking for one fucking terrorist? Go use your other fucking capabilities. Don't breach the security of people who are using technology, which is pretty much everyone across the board. So that's why I don't get when 51% of fucking Americans say, well, what difference does it make? Because you dumbass motherfucker, it's not about opening one fucking cell phone. It's about them breaking their own encryption so that it can jailbreak into everything across the board. It's not about one key to open one fucking door. It's about the master key that opens everything. So this is from February 16th, and it was a message to the customers from Tim Cook. February 16, 2016, is posted on Apple.com. A message to our customers. The United States government has demanded that Apple take an unprecedented step which threatens the security of our customers. We oppose this order, which has implications far beyond the legal case at hand. This moment calls for public discussion, and we want our customers and people around the country to understand what is at stake. The need for encryption, smartphones led by iPhone, have become an essential part of our lives. People use them to store an incredible amount of personal information from our private conversations to our photos, our music, our notes, our calendars, and contacts, our financial information and health data, even where we have been, and where we are going. All that information needs to be protected from hackers and criminals who want to access it, steal it, and use it without our knowledge or permission. Customers expect Apple 
and other technology companies to do everything in our power to protect their personal information. And at Apple, we are deeply committed to safeguarding their data. Compromising the security of our personal information can ultimately put our personal safety at risk. That is why encryption has become so important to all of us. For many years, we have used encryption to protect our customers' personal data because we believe it's the only way to keep their information safe. We have even put that data out of our own reach because we believe the contents of your iPhone are none of our business. So what they did was something sim- similar to what um, uh, Lev- Levinson, something Levinson, he had a company and he closed his company because he was using this type of encryption, so he didn't even have access to it. But they were looking for the SSL key so that it would get into it. So instead of breaching the security, they said, if you want one account, you can, you know, un, you know, we'll abide by the law, but you will not get that key so that you can access all these other people who are using encryption. So instead of, instead of backing down, and turning it over, he shut his company and destroyed the information. Because, but he lost his business. But he was willing to step up to, I'm sorry, he was one company. He was one of the first who stepped up to the plate for all of us Americans saying, if you need one account, we get it. When you want the keys to all the accounts, that's unacceptable. Ladar Levinson is what his name was, and he shut his company down. He said, I would rather shut my company and go out of business than breach the security of, of, you know, respected customers who utilize my company so that they could be secure in their communications. So he lost his business because he was unwilling to breach our security. So the San Bernardino case, we are shocked and outraged by the deadly act of terrorism in San Bernardino last December. We mourn the loss of life and we want justice for all those whose lives were affected. The FBI asked us for help in the days following the attack and we have worked hard to support the government's efforts to solve this horrible crime. We have no sympathy for terrorists. When the FBI has requested what when the FBI has requested data that's in our possession, we have provided it. Apple complies with valid subpoenas and search warrants as we have in San Bernard in the San Bernardino case. We have also made Apple engineers available to advise the Federal Bureau of Investigation or FBI and We've offered our best ideas on a number of investigative options at their disposal. We have great respect for the professionals at the FBI, and we believe their intentions are good. Up to this point, we have done everything that is both within our powers and within the law to help them. But now the United States government has asked us for something we simply do not have and something we consider too dangerous to create. They have asked us to build a backdoor to the iPhone. Specifically, the FBI wants us to make a new version of the iPhone's operating system 
circumventing several important security features and install it on an iPhone recovered during the investigation. In the wrong hands, this software, which does not exist today, would have the potential to unlock any iPhone in someone's physical possession. The FBI may use different words to describe this tool, but make no mistake, building a version of iOS that bypasses security in this way would undeniably create a backdoor. And while the government may argue that its use would be limited to this case, there is no way to guarantee such control. And by the way, Tim Cook, I think he says it in there, it's not, it, it, they never, it was never intended for just that one in San Bernardino. Apparently now there's seven or nine phones that they're trying to break into. The threat to data. Some would argue that building a back, so they lied already. Oh, it's just one phone. And then they're finding out that there's tons of law enforcement all over that want the access to it so they could break into these iPhones. So they lied. The threat to data security. Some would argue that building a backdoor for just one iPhone is a simple clean-cut solution, but it ignores both the basics of digital security and the significance of what the government is demanding in this case. If today, in today's digital world, the key to an encrypted system is a piece of information that unlocks the data, and it is only as secure as the protection around it. Once the information is known, or a way to bypass the code is revealed, the encryption can be defeated by anyone with that knowledge. The government suggests this tool could only be used once on one phone, but that's simply not true. Once created, the technique could be used over and over again on any number of devices. In the physical world, it would be the equivalent of a master key capable of opening hundreds of millions of locks, from restaurants and banks to stores and homes. No reasonable person would find that acceptable. The government is asking Apple to hack our own users and undermine decades of security advancements that protect our customers including tens of millions of American citizens for sophistic from sophisticated hackers and cyber criminals. The same engineers who built strong encryption into the iPhone to protect our users would, ironically, be ordered to weaken those protections and make our users less safe. We can find no precedent, precedent for an American company being forced to expose its customers to a greater risk of attack. For years, cryptologists and national security experts have been warning against weakening encryption. Doing so would hurt only the well-meaning and law-abiding citizen who rely, citizens who rely on companies like Apple to protect their data. Criminals and bad actors will still encrypt using tools that are readily available to them. A dangerous precedent. Rather than asking for legislative action through Congress, the FBI is proposing an unprecedented use of the All Writs Act of 1789 to justify an expansion of its authority. The government would have us remove security features and add new capabilities to the operating system 
allowing a passcode to be input electronically. This would make it easier to unlock an iPhone by brute force, trying thousands of millions of combinations with the speed of a modern computer. The implications of the government's demands are chilling. If the government can use the Alt-Rift Act to make it easier to unlock your iPhone, it would have the power to reach into anyone's device to capture their data. The government could extend this breach of privacy and demand that Apple build surveillance software to intercept your messages, access your health records or financial data, track your location, or even access your phone's microphone or camera without your knowledge. Opposing this order is not something we take lightly. We feel we must speak up in the face of what we see as an overreach by the United States government. We are challenging the FBI's demand with the deepest respect for American democracy and a love of our country. We believe it would be in the best interest of everyone to step back and consider the implications. While we believe the FBI's intentions are good, it would be wrong for the government to force us to build a backdoor into our products. And ultimately, we fear that this demand would undermine the very freedoms and liberties our government is meant to protect. Tim Cook. So he stepped up. But you know what? That's right. Ladar Levinson was the first person, and he lost his company because he had a small one. But he was unwilling to allow the government blanket access to their customers' information. If he had a warrant and it was legitimate, then – but you know what? Ladar Levinson's one was done under the um, national uh, defense um, – national security letters which means that if you get if someone gives you a national security letter, you can't even tell your, your loved ones, your family, you know, your coworkers or whatever, and you've got to start giving them all this information, and you can't tell anyone that you even got the letter. So look up Ladar Levinson. Lava Bit was the company, and that man stood up to the plate and lost his business because he was unwilling to risk our security. That's an American hero. He believes in the Constitution. This FBI shit, these people don't believe in the Constitution. Oh, they took down my internet connection because they try to fuck around with my shit. Good thing I had um, the links all up there. So let me do the next one. It's... um, They have a Q&A or they give you some information. Because most Americans are so fucking stupid or ignorant. You know, oh, well, what's the big deal? Just open one phone. It's not about one phone. It's about a master key to all phones. Use your fucking heads, people. Stop buying into the, the, the propagandized narrative networks that sell you propaganda and lies. So this is the Q&A. Answers to your questions about Apple and security. Why is Apple objecting to the government's orders? The government asked a court to order Apple to create a unique version of iOS that would bypass security protection on the iPhone iPhone lock screen. It would also 
add a complete new capability so that passcode tries could be entered electronically. This has two important and dangerous implications. First, the government would have us write an entire, entirely new operating system for their use. They're asking Apple to remove security features and add a new ability to the operating system to attack iPhone en encryption, allowing a passcode to be input electronically. This would make it easier to unlock an iPhone by brute force, trying thousands of millions of combinations with the speed of modern computers. We built strong security into the iPhone because people carry so much personal information on our phones today, and there are new data breaches every week affecting individuals, companies, and governments. The passcode lock and requirements for manual entry of the passcode are at the heart of the safeguard, safeguards we have built in the iOS. It would be wrong to intentionally weaken our products with a government-ordered backdoor. If we lose control of our data, we put both our privacy and our safety at risk. Second, the order would set a legal precedent that would expand the powers of the government, and we simply do not, don't know where that would lead. Should the government be allowed to order us to create that other capabilities for surveillance purposes, such as recording conversations or location tracking, this would set a very dangerous precedent. Is it technically possible to do what the government has ordered? Yes, it, certainly, it is certainly possible to create an entirely new operating system to undermine our security features as the government wants but it's something we believe is too dangerous to do. The only way to guarantee that such a powerful tool is not abused and doesn't fall into the wrong hands is to never create it. They get it. Could Apple build this operating system just once for this iPhone and never use it again? The digital world is very different from the physical world. In the physical world, you can destroy something and it's gone. But in the digital world, the technique once created could be used over and over again on any number of devices. Law enforcement agents around the country have already said they have hundreds of iPhones they want Apple to unlock if the FBI wins this case. In the physical world, it would be equivalent to a master key capable of opening hundreds of millions of locks. Of course, Apple would do our best to protect that key. <clears throat> but in a world where all of our data is under constant threat, it would be relentlessly attacked by hackers and cyber criminals. A recent attack on the IRS system and countless other data breaches have shown no one is immune to cyber attacks. Again, we strongly believe the only way to guarantee that such a powerful tool is not abused and doesn't fall into the wrong hands is to never create it. Has Apple unlocked iPhones for law enforcement in the past? No. We regularly receive law enforcement requests for information about our customers and their Apple devices. In fact, we have a dedicated team that responds to these requests 24-7. We also provide guidelines on our website for law enforcement agencies so they know exactly what they are able to access and what legal authority we need to see before we can help them. For devices running on iPhone operating systems prior to iOS 8 and under a lawful court order, we have extracted data from our, our, an iPhone. We've built progressively stronger protections into our products 
with each new software release, including passcode-based data encryption because cyber attacks have only become more frequent and more sophisticated. As a result of these stronger protections that require data encryption, we are no longer able to use the data extraction process on an iPhone running in iOS 8 or later. Hackers and cyber criminals are always looking for new ways to defeat our security, which is why we keep making it stronger. The government says your objection appears to be based on concerns for your business model and marketing strategy. Is that true? Absolutely not. Nothing can be further from the truth. This is and always has been about our customers. We feel strongly that if we were to do some to what the government has asked us to create a backdoor to our product, not only is it unlawful, but it puts a vast majority of good and law-abiding citizens who rely on iPhones to protect their most personal and important data at risk. Is there any other way you can help the FBI? We have done everything that's both within our power and within the law to help in this case. As we've said, we have no sympathy for terrorists. We provided all the information about the phone that we possess. We also proactively offered advice on obtaining additional information. Even since the government's orders, what it, the government's order was issued, we are providing further suggestions after learning new information from the Justice Department's filings. One of the strongest suggestions we offered was that they pair the phone to a previously joined network, which would allow them to back up the phone and get the data they are now asking for. Unfortunately, we learned that while the attacker's iPhone was in the FBI's custody, the Apple ID password associated with the phone was changed. Changing this password meant the phone could no longer access iCloud services. As the government has confirmed, we've handed over all the data we have, including a backup of the iPhone in question. But now they have asked us for information we simply do not have. What should happen from here? Our country has always been strongest when we come together. We feel the best way forward would be for the government to withdraw its demands under the All Writs Act and, as some in Congress have proposed, form a commission of other panels of experts on intelligence, technology, and civil liberties to discuss the implications for law enforcement, national security, privacy, and personal freedom. Apple would gladly participate in such an event. So that's from Apple. Uh, and I'm going to play you the... Um, there was an interview on ABC last night... <clears throat> Ignorance has no bounds, you know. Followers are sheeple that don't use critical thinking. You know how many people I deal with like that? Throughout neighborhoods, every single neighborhood. Easily manipulated by psi operators. Help breach the security of this nation. You know, they blame China and Russia. That's a crock of shit. It's simply a compromised employee. It takes all it takes is a thumb drive.
So this was uh, ABC last night with Tim Cook. Good to be here. Hey, thanks, for thanks for having us in your office. I don't think we've ever done an interview in your office before. I'm not sure I've ever done an interview in the office. Well, I know this is an important issue, so we'll dive right in. Thank you. As we sit here, you know some of the families of the victims in San Bernardino have now come out in support of the judge's order that Apple helped the FBI unlock that iPhone. One family reportedly saying, we're angry and confused as to why Apple is refusing to do this. What would you say to those families tonight? David, they have our deepest sympathy. What they've been through, no one should have to go through. Apple has cooperated with the FBI fully in this case. Uh, they came to us and asked us for all the information we had on this phone, and we gave everything that we had. Uh, we went further than that and volunteered engineers to help them and gave them numerous suggestions about how they might learn more about this particular case. But this case is not about my phone. This case is about the future. What, what is at stake here is can the government compel Apple to write software that we believe would make hundreds of millions of customers vulnerable around the world, including the U.S., and also trample civil liberties that are at the basic foundation of what this country was made on. And you have to write that system in order to unlock that phone. Yes. Yes. This is so, we, we have no more information about this phone. The only way to get information, at least currently the only way we know, would be to write a piece of software that we view as sort of the software equivalent of cancer. We think it's bad news to write. We would never write it. We have never written it. And that is what is at stake here. You were aware of the polling on this, the Pew poll this week that showed 51% of Americans say Apple should unlock the phone. The new Reuters poll just today showing nearly half understand where you're coming from. But this is clearly a country divided on this. What do you say to the folks who say you should write that software, you should help unlock the phone? Well, this, this is not about a poll. This is about the future. And what I have seen is, is people understand what is at stake here an increasing number support us. We've had, we have support from politicians to the, the, the ones that grabbed me the most. I've gotten thousands of emails since this occurred. And the largest single category of people are from the military. These are men and women who fight for our freedom and our liberty. And they want us to stand up and be counted on this issue for them. Are you reading those letters, those emails? Every I am reading every one. So do you understand what Tim Cook is saying? But he is getting tons of letters from military and law enforcement telling Apple, do not give these government, the government the key. So you're talking about insiders who know how corrupted it is at this point. Military, law enforcement, they're, they're writing letters, they're calling or whatever saying, don't give them the key. Do not give this government the key. They are very heartfelt and very emotional. This is, this is our country. This country is about life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. It's about freedom of expression and freedom of speech. These are core principles in America. The FBI, though, says it believes that Syed Farouk used that phone to communicate with his wife, his accomplice. And I'm curious, do you struggle at all with the possibility that there could be information on that phone that could reveal other plots, other people, who were involved in planning the San Bernardino attack. David, if we knew a way to get the information on the phone that we haven't already given, if 
we knew a way to do this that would not expose hundreds of millions of other people's issues, we would obviously do it. But again, this is not about what's wrong. This is about the future. But the central question that I'm curious is, if you up, could this phone potentially save lives and prevent another terrorist attack, the information on it? We don't know that there's any information on the phone. We don't know whether there is or there isn't. And the FBI doesn't know whether there is or there isn't. What we do know is we pass all of the information that we have on the phone. And to get additional information on it, or at least what the FBI would like us to do now, would expose hundreds of millions of people to issues. I want to get to what the FBI director, James Comey, has said. He said it's not about a slippery slope. It's about, quote, 14 people who were slaughtered and many more had their lives ruined. Maybe the phone holds the clue to finding more terrorists. Maybe it doesn't. But we can't look the survivors in the eye and ourselves if we don't follow any possible lead out there. Do you understand where he's coming from? I do understand where he's coming from. And, and this is an incredibly complex issue. Uh, but, but it is about the future. Think about this. If, if a court compels Apple to write this piece of software, then we then place a back door in the iPhone. We believe it does put hundreds of millions of customers at risk. In addition, if a court can ask us to write this piece of software, think about what else they could ask us to write. Maybe it's an operating system for surveillance. Maybe it's the ability for the law enforcement to turn on the camera. I mean, I don't know where this stops, but I do know that this is not this is not what should be happening in this country. This is not what should be happening in America. If there should be a law that compels us to do it, it should be passed out in the open, and the people of America should get a voice in that. The right place for that debate to occur is in Congress. But you speak of that backdoor, Tim, and John Miller, the head of counterterrorism of the New York City Police Department, has said, if an executive at Apple had a member of their family kidnapped, they would have their best engineers working on opening that phone, and it would have been done in a very short amount of time. Is that fair? No. The, David, it's not like we have information on this phone in the next office over. We have no other information on this phone, none. The only way we know to get additional information is to write a piece of software that is the software equivalent of cancer. That is what is at stake here. Let me ask you this. You've invited me to Apple before. The stories are legendary about new products with black drapery over them, the, the locked doors, the secrecy. Any American company can keep a secret. It's Apple. To those who might say, why didn't the FBI and Apple team up far earlier in one of those secret labs and get this done, and, and no one would have ever had to know about it? Well, I, I can't talk about uh, the tactics of the FBI. They've chosen what they've done. They've chosen to do this out in the public. Uh, for, for whatever reason that uh, they have. What we think at this point, given it is out in public, is that we need to stand tall and stand tall on principle. We, our job is to protect our customers, and our customers have incredibly uh, detailed information on their phone. There's probably more information about you on your phone than there is in your house. Our smartphones are loaded with our intimate conversations, our financial data, our health records. They're also loaded with the location of our kids in many cases. And so it's not just about privacy, but it's also about public safety. No one would want this kind of information to be available. 
No one, no one, I don't believe, would want a master key built that would turn hundreds of millions of rocks. Even if that key were in the possession of the person that you trust the most, that key could be stolen. That is what this is about. So there's no question you are concerned about a slippery slope, about a precedent that would be set if you did this. If David, it's clear that it would be a precedent. The, the uh, New York law enforcement is already talking about having 175 phones there. Other counties across the United States are talking about phones they have. And so it is a slippery slope. I don't fear it. It is one. If you didn't think this would set a precedent, if you, if you didn't believe this would be a slippery slope, is this something your engineers could do, and, and how quickly could they do it? Uh, we've never done it before, so I don't know how long it would take. Would I do it? In a perfect world where none of the implications that I'm talking about exist, yes, we would do it. We would obviously do it, but we don't live in a perfect world. If you, if you look at hacking, many Americans, hundreds of millions of Americans last year had their credit cards stolen. I mean, this is a, it's just a travesty, but it's just not that. It's also the location of their family members. There's so much information on a phone that goes beyond economics and privacy. It is also public safety. And so I know people like to frame this argument as privacy versus national security. That is overly simplistic, and it is not true. This is also about public safety. The smartphone that you carry, has more information about you on it than probably any other singular device or any other singular place. So this is about protecting the safety of the people who carry those iPhones. That's exactly right. And by the way, if, and it's probably just not iPhone, because if the government could order Apple to create such a piece of software, it could be ordered for anyone else as well. Let me ask you, stop here. Did you have conversations with the FBI early on about helping them find ways to get at that information without having to break into the phone? We, we gave significant advice to them. As a matter of fact, one of the things that we suggested was take the phone to a network that it would be familiar with, which is generally the home, uh, plug it in, power it on, leave it overnight, and so, so that it would back up, and so that you'd have a current backup. The phone backs up to the iCloud. Backs up to the iCloud which makes a, you can think of it as making a picture of almost everything on the phone. Not everything, but almost everything. Did they do that? Uh, unfortunately, in the days, the early days of the investigation, uh, an FBI, FBI directed the county to reset the iCloud password. When that is done, the phone will no longer back up to the cloud. And so I, I wish they would have contacted us earlier so that that would not have been the case. How crucial was that missed opportunity? You know, it's, it, assuming the cloud backup was still on, and there's no reason to believe that it wasn't, then it is very crucial. The FBI has acknowledged that they changed the Apple ID on the phone uh, and, and therefore missed the opportunity to sync up with the iCloud. But it's their contention that there is still information, data on the phone, the iPhone that they have in their hands. Is that possible? There would be information on the phone, sure. There's some information on the phone. I don't know what it is. Uh, the kinds of things that you would be able to find out from other places are uh, what calls were made. Where were they made to? Were messages sent across the cellular network? All of this kind of information is available without going into the phone. 
Could there be additional information on the phone? Maybe. Maybe yes, maybe no. I don't know. And even the FBI has acknowledged they're not sure. Yes. I think, I think in, that case, in that area, there is no dispute. There's some people at home listening to this argument who understand where you're coming from, who might say this was a terrorist attack on U.S. soil, and that if ever there was a case that Apple would make some sort of exception, that this might be that moment. Do you really want to plant the flag on privacy and safety on Syed Baruch's iPhone? I think safety of the public is incredibly important. Safety of our kids, safety of our family is very important. Uh, the protection of people's data is incredibly important. And so the trade-off here is we know that doing this could expose people to incredible vulnerabilities. This is not something that we would create. This, is, this would be bad for America. It would also set a precedent that I believe many people in America would be offended by. And so when you think about those which are known compared to something that might be there, I believe we are making the right choice. But in your quiet moments, do you have any concern that you might be able to prevent a terrorist attack by breaking into that phone? David, some things are hard, and some things are right, and some things are both. This is one of those things. And in this case, you believe there are some things that just should never be created. Correct. Think about this. It is, in our view, the software equivalent of cancer. Is this something that should be created? Technology can, can do so many things, but there are many things technology should never be allowed to do. And the way you're not allowed it is to not create it. The White House said this week that the FBI's request is, quote, limited in scope. Limited in scope. Do you agree with that? And have you talked to the president on this? I have not talked to the president. I will talk to the president. Uh, do I think it's limited? No. I think this is not about the spawn. This is about the future. And so I do see it as a, as a precedent that should not be done in this country or any country. This, this, this is about civil liberty. It is about people's ability to protect themselves. If we take encryption away from the good people, the only people, or we take encryption away, the only people that will be affected are the good people, not the bad people. Encryption, Apple doesn't own encryption. Encryption is readily available in every country in the world. As a matter of fact, the U.S. government sponsors and funds encryption in many cases. And so if we limit it in some way, the people that will hurt are the good people, not the bad people. They will find it anyway. You mentioned that you would be talking with the president. What will you tell him? I'm going to, to try to uh, make the arguments that I made to you. And, and ask for his help in getting this on a better path. Because I strongly believe that the best of America comes out when we do all come together. But when you're gridlock in Washington, are you convinced that this is a kind of issue they can tackle right now? I hope so. And, and optimistically, I think so. Because people care deeply about civil liberties in Washington. They care deeply about safety. They care deeply about national security. So all of these issues are things that all of us care about. And, and so, yeah, I do believe that. You have talked to the president before on these issues yeah. of privacy and security. 
Are you disappointed there wasn't more of a dialogue with the administration before this swift action from the Justice Department? Yes. You wish there was more done? Yes. And I think there should have been. Uh, this filing, uh, we found out about the filing from the press. And I, I don't think that's the way the rail right should be run. And I don't think that something so important to this country should be handled in this way. Let me ask you. You brought up encryption, and I think that's a really important point for the people at home to understand the evolution of encryption with the iPhone. You had a previous operating system with the iPhone where law enforcement authorities have pointed out they could extract the data from the phone. They can no longer do that. And that was a conscious decision by Apple, was it not? It was. If, if you look at the last few years, hacking has become increasingly commonplace. It is very difficult to secure data. And the everyday person can't do it. They look for Apple to help them do it. I mean, you, can, you need to look no further than the government which has had some of the worst breaches of all in this case. And so, yes, security gets better with every software release that we have. Encryption gets more advanced. It has to to stay one step ahead of the bad guy. So it's not a mistake that we can't get into Syed Group's phone. It, we're not, we didn't do it for that reason, David. We did it to protect our customers. But, yes, a side effect is it means that Apple can't get into it either. Because think of it like this. If you put a door in a house, it's a lot easier to get in that house. It doesn't matter whether it's locked or not. You can get, somebody can get in that. And so our simple view is you encrypt end to end and you don't keep a key. And so the people that can see communication are the people on either end of that communication. But let's stick with that metaphor and to the people who say we want just a door to this house, Syed Farouk's iPhone. Is that possible? No, there's no such thing as a back door for the good guys. The bad guys will find it too. Meaning, your concern is for the millions of customers who walk around with their own data, their family's data on their phones. Yes, I am. And, and keep in mind, this data includes the location of their kids, the location of their family. This isn't just about privacy, although it's very important. It's also about public safety. You're aware of the people watching this who understand your argument, but who say, in this case, this was a terrorist's iPhone. What would you say? If we had no sympathy for terrorists, in my view, they left their rights back when they decided to do awful things, way in the planning stage. This isn't about, we're not protecting their privacy. We're protecting the privacy of everyone else. We're protecting the public safety of everyone else. That is what this is about. If they left their rights at the door, why not break into their phone then? Because it's doing that exposes everyone else. That is the reason. Yeah. Developing that piece of software develops a piece of software that is so powerful that has the ability to unlock or the capability to unlock other iPhones. That is the issue. Because your argument is that master key can't then be thrown out. You, it's not like a physical key. A physical key you could shred. The software key, and of course with other parts of the government asking for more and more cases and more and more cases, that software would stay living and it would be turning the crank. And you can imagine the target that would be on that, that, that piece. I'm not saying government would abuse it. I don't, I don't agree 
that going case by case is the right approach. But there's a lot of bad guys in the world. And you don't need to look further than what has happened to our own government. Millions of people have had their personal information stolen by hackers. As you know, this has become an issue in the race for president. Donald Trump is calling for a boycott of Apple until, quote, Tim Cook unlocks that phone. Trump adding that the phone is owned by the government, by San Bernardino County. Does he have a point here? No, David, in a few weeks, Apple will turn 40. Apple could have only been started in America. We've created 1.9 million jobs now in the United States, and we have tens of millions of customers who use our products. We work for them, and we love deeply our country. But what, what's at stake here is should we be compelled to write software that we believe would make vulnerable hundreds of millions of people and trample on civil liberties. That is what is at stake. And the heartwarming emails I'm getting from military, from policemen, from all across America tells me there's a fair number of people that believe as we do. And even the people that don't believe that in our democracy, this should be out in the open and discussed, not under some kind of you know, done in the back room somewhere. But you hear that from the Republican frontrunner, from Donald Trump, boycott Apple until Tim Cook unlocks the phone. A lot of presidential candidates have been asked, how will they, how will they talk with the tech community about protecting this country? Is that the right route in saying boycott Apple? The, the best thing, uh, David, is America is strongest when we all come together. And so there, there are great people in the FBI, in the DOJ, and in government incredible uh, public service. There's also some really smart people in technology, and there's some really great people focused on civil liberties. All of these groups need to come together. We've recommended a commission. I would be okay with it being called something else or done in a different way, but the key is for all of the key people to come together and really think through these issues, but not just look at one. Look at all of them and recognize that at the core of this are some of the founding principles of our country, which we should be take a huge pause to trample on. So is a boycott a way to come together? You know, I, I think a democracy is messy sometimes, but this, this is, I love democracy. That is who we are. I think the best thing to do is to discuss and collaborate and work together on whatever the solution may be. Help people at home understand what you mean when you say the FBI wants you to create a separate system that would get you into that phone. Right now, they have, they have an iPhone, the passcode on the front, like we all use to get into our iPhones. And after a certain number of tries, it just auto-erases the phone. What they want is they want us to develop a new operating system that takes out the, the security precautions, including the precaution that after 10 tries, if somebody has set, uh, erased all data after 10, they want that to not be in there. And then they want a ability to uh, go through a number of passwords at the speed of a modern computer. A computer would do that. To a figure computer out would do that. And so that is what they're asking for. We believe that is a very dangerous operating system. Because once people know that that exists, you say, it's out of the bag. Yeah, well, think about this for a minute. 
that guy knew that that existed. Think about the target that is. Everybody would want that operating system because you could get in, it has the potential to get into any iPhone. This is not something that should be created, which takes me back to that question about middle ground. Was there an opportunity missed where Apple could have quietly met with the FBI behind closed doors in one of your many labs here, Apple being the best at keeping secrets uh, around, to have come up with a solution long before this moment? We, uh, David, we continue to uh, look for things in this case. We're, we're not giving up. What we're, what we're objecting to is building something that's bad for people. Uh, is there an opportunity? I think, it's, I think the best things will happen when people work together. The, the best way to know what was on this phone would have been to have the cloud back up. That is the best way, and unfortunately an error was made, and that is impossible. Have you been surprised? by how swift the action has been from the Justice Department, given your previous dialogue with this administration? Yes. I was surprised uh, that we weren't contacted, and uh, that I wasn't contacted personally and told they were doing this. Uh, and it have changed the outcome? I don't know. I, I, I don't know. But I think uh, if you and I are working together for a long time, and I've decided to, uh, to uh, uh, file a lawsuit on you, I feel like I owe it to you to tell you in advance, you personally. And that didn't happen here, and I'm disappointed with it. However, it doesn't affect our willingness and desire and desire to cooperate fully, to discuss the future, but we shouldn't be. But I, I do want them to withdraw this case because this case is bad for America. And how will you answer the order this week? Uh, we will answer and say why we object, and we'll, uh, we will await the, the court's decision. There is reporting that writing computer code, the code that, that it would take to create this system to get into that phone, should be protected under the First Amendment. Is that part of the case? Uh, that, that's up to the lawyers, uh, honestly. Uh, it, it's not at the primary, it's not my primary focus. My primary focus is, as I said before, is on the customers that would then be vulnerable and the trampling on civil liberties. That is my focus. I'm curious, Tim. Did you ever think that you'd find yourself at the center of uh, such a crucial national debate? No. Uh, this, is, this is not a position that we would like to be in. It is a very uncomfortable position. Uh, to oppose your government on something doesn't feel good. And to oppose it on something where we are advocating for civil liberties, which they are supposed to protect, it is incredibly ironic. But this is where we find ourselves. And for all, so for all of those people who want to have a voice, but they're afraid, we are standing up. And we are standing up for our customers because protecting them, we view, is our job. And, and I hope, and I think, I'm very optimistic. I think we will come together. And I don't, I don't know what will happen, but I think we will come together and there will be one, one path forward. The U.S. always comes out of these things well. And, but, but I feel very good that the debate is going on. Even when people disagree with us, 
it is good that the debate is happening. That's what makes this country so special. And for you, personally, has this been the biggest challenge in, in being CEO of Apple that you've faced? I've faced a lot of challenges, but I've, I've never felt sort of the government apparatus before. And, and so, yes, I would say this is right up there. Uh, but it's not my sole focus by any means. We're focused on, on making great products. And I heard you say there is great hope still that you can come together on this. You don't know how it will happen, but you hope it will happen. But are you prepared to take this all the way to the Supreme Court? Uh, we would be prepared to take this issue all the way, yes, because I think it's that important for yeah. America. Yeah. Uh, this should not be decided court by court by court. If you decide that, that it's okay to force a company to do something that they think is bad for hundreds of millions of people, then think about this for a minute. And this case is an awful case. There is no worse case than this case. But there may be a judge in a different district that feels that this case should apply to a divorce case. There may be one in the next state over that thinks it should apply in a tax case. Another state over it might should apply in a robbery. And so you begin to say, wait a minute. This isn't how this should happen. If there is going to be a law, then it should be done out in the open for people so their voices are heard through their representatives in Congress. And if Congress decided that there's this small category, this was a terrorist's iPhone, if Congress decided that, if the American people signed off on that, we'd entertain it. At, yeah, let me be clear. At the end of the day, we have to follow the law. Just like everybody else, we have to follow the law. What, we're, what is going on right now is we're, getting, we're having our voices be heard. And I would encourage everyone that has a voice on here that, or that wants to have a voice and wants to have an opinion to make sure their voice is heard. That's why we're here today. So that was Tim Cook last night on ABC um, talking about why he's decided to step up to the plate. Um, but I'm going to read you a little tidbit of information and why I know how dangerous it gets, especially when you have the civilian perpetrator community, the state corporate and academia-sponsored sanction and covered up gives them access to tactics, techniques, and some of these weaponized technologies. Um, back in 2014, uh, thieves are using mystery gadget to electronically unlock cars and steal what is inside. All over America, criminals are using improvised electronic devices to electronically unlock vehicles and steal whatever they find inside. These mystery gadgets reportedly recreate the same signals that the key fob um, that the key fobs that so many of us carry around send out. As you will see below, footage is popping up nationwide of thieves using these mystery gadgets to remotely unlock car doors and disable alarm systems. Okay, so the article goes on. So it's a handheld gadget. So the first thing that struck me as a targeted victim is that 99% of all TIs have, I'm sure, gone to law enforcement because how are they getting into your vehicle when you, you, you're, you're locking the car? Okay? You have a car alarm and you're, you're activating it, how did they get into the car to take the, the, you know, the charger or whatever? You know, these little petty items that they would steal right out of your vehicle. 
So all most all targets have come forward to law enforcement. But what struck me was this is nationwide. How did a handheld gadget go nationwide? Well, if the clandestine services, which you probably know, like Tailored Access Operation, which is the, the elite group from the National Security Agency or your alpha agencies like the CIA or whoever, and you, you need to put a tracker in a vehicle without the person knowing, you disable the alarm, you know, through you, you, you basically reboot the operating system, the car opens, you get into the system, you deactivate the vehicle, put the tracker in or whatever, and you leave. So then I started thinking, well, these clandestine agencies aren't going to, they're handing them over to these civilians in the perpetrator community. What makes you think all those civilians are these ethical, honest people? So they, they happen to lose one of them. You take it apart, you figure out how it works. Suddenly you have all these non, non-citizens, you know, citizens, that are breaking into cars, and it's not just happening in one geographic location. It was spread throughout the United States. And they were robbing other people's cars. So my first thing was, this is not isolated, and it's happening in in, in locations spread throughout the United States all simultaneously. Well, the only people I could think of was the Civilian Perpetrator Network. And they decided to to refabricate it and build it one of their own, pass it around to their network, and these guys were going around stealing from people, other people's cars. So you take a clandestine device that maybe CIA or FBI or some other corporate agency utilizes when they're tracking a real perpetrator, a suspect, and they need to get into the car to put a tracking device or whatever. So here's these, these, these technologies that come from these clandestine services all of a sudden in the hands across the nation of these people who are utilizing it to deactivate the vehicle like a key fob and then break into these people's cars. Now, how does that happen across the nation simultaneously? Well, when you have a perpetrator network who was given access to it to go fuck with the target in, in their neighborhood and they decide that, hey, this is pretty cool. Let me figure out how it's made and let me let me replicate it. Then suddenly, across the fucking nation, you have these people deactivating these cars, and within seconds, they're in and out of those vehicles, taking all kinds of stuff because you're deactivating and you're you're rebooting the operating system. And most people didn't even know what it was because there was a mysterious gadget in their hands, and it replicated the key fob. And you think that breaking into someone's car, you're asking a corporation to write, give them access, you know, to write code so that they could break into their own stuff. And what, it's just going to stay in the hands of the FBI? That's a crock of motherfucking shit. So when I, when I read this, the first thing that was, it's happening all across the United States. So how did these people suddenly all across the United States have multiple access to these devices. Well, if you're a perpetrator community, a nationwide state corporate and academia-sponsored sanctioned and covered-up network, they're going to hand you these gizmos and gadgets to, number one, field test, and number two, hey, now you can fuck with the target. 
So it says, these mystery gadgets reportedly recreate the same signals that the key, key fob that so many of us carry around send out. As you will see from uh, below footage, is popping up nationwide of thieves using these mystery gadgets to remotely unlock car doors and disable alarm system. Once the car has been unlocked, it takes these thieves just a few moments to take what they want before leaving without a trace. This is now happening all over the country. The authorities do not know any way to prevent it from happening. For now, the most common piece of advice that police are giving people is not to leave any valuables inside of your vehicles. When reports of this sort, this sort of crime first came out, even car manufacturers were totally stumped. Nobody could figure out how this was happening, and CNN start, uh, startled a lot of people when they started reporting on this. So basically, even the key, the, the car, the security, well, where did they figure it out? Well, if you had tailored access operations and you, you're recruiting civilian fucking snitches for the state and you're giving them access to play around and fuck with the target, you think those people are so ethical that they're not going to replicate it? Next thing you know, you got perps all across the nation. So it wasn't like happening in one community like Los Angeles. It was strategic all over the nation. Well, how did all these people get simultaneous access? Well, if you're a perp with the state and military, you decide to do your own shit. That's why I know how dangerous it is for the courts to compel Apple to write that software. Because something as simple as a gadget that, say, tailored access operations or the clandestine agencies utilize. Then they give it to their little trainees and their little civilian perpetrator trainees and their community liaison programs and their neighborhood fucking watch programs. And the next thing you know, you see something like this. So if it was isolated to just Los Angeles, then that would, that, that would be like whatever. But when I was reading the articles, it says it's happening all over the nation. And the first thing that came to mind is perpetrator network. Targets have complained. How did they get into my car? Simple. You were given a gadget. Just like the right now, they're blowing the acoustic weapons into my house. They were given a gadget, a device, a weapon in the hands of a civilian that's blasting it at my living space. What the fuck is that civilian doing with access to military-grade weapons? What the fuck were civilians doing with access to capabilities that could open targets' cars so they could steal items, mess around with them, move things around, remove things, bring them back? And then suddenly you got a, 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 a people breaking into cars with a little gadget that's scrambling, shutting down the... You know, basically, what I think it does is it reboots the operating system of these electronic cars. So when it's rebooting, the door's probably open. They come in and go out. By the time it reboots, the, door, the car locks itself again. You know, it resets itself. So this was a perfect example. 
of a civilian perpetrator network that goes rogue. You better believe you should never create something that can break encryption into everything. But like I say, I'm dealing with people blasting acoustic weapons. What the fuck are these civilians doing on their American or their, 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 their the, the city property, their private property, setting up a goddamn military-grade fucking weapon? Why? Because those dumbass motherfuckers in the Department of Defense and their corporate counterparts decided that it was okay to do that. But they think those people are so fucking ethical. That's why they torture people to death, because they're so fucking ethical. (laughs) So always remember, this is just a sample of how these guys were using a handheld device to to open up these these cars all over the place, brand new, you know, cars with state of the art security systems. Why? Because that's probably somewhere from the clandestine agencies that these guys replicated and then passed it around. How would they even know about creating signals to deactivate cars? Well, that comes from the fucking clandestine agencies. So that's why I don't I that's why I'm I'm absolutely fundamentally opposed to this breaking of encryption. I've already seen the abuse. I live with the abuse of this type of access to these type of weapons and these type of tactics and these type of techniques. Every fucking day since I've been targeted. But that's right. You're only going to give it to the good people who are so fucking ethical, they would never, ever abuse these weapons or these capabilities or these tactics or these techniques or the gizmos and gadgets. And that's a crock of fucking shit because we have dead fucking targets to prove just how much they abuse those capabilities. So thank you, Apple, for stepping up to the plate like Ladar Levinson. And thank you, you have so much cash, and you guys, your company has so much money to buy the lawyers that targets like us couldn't. But I live with fucking people who have given, who were given provided access to these gizmos and gadgets and capabilities, and they abuse their fucking access to them every mother fucking day of the goddamn fucking week. So you better believe by, by if the courts ever te- compel companies to break their own encryption with a master key, they will abuse that fucking shit 
like there was no goddamn tomorrow. Nobody knows that better than a victim of people who have had access to these type of capabilities and abuse it every chance they get. I'm putting the link of these articles that came up back in 2014, and it, I was instantly—I knew instantly that they were clandestine devices that got into the hands of this, these net, this nationwide network of perpetrators, and there were some rogue people who decided they were going to do it, replicate them. It's as simple as that. They're giving these people access to these type of technologies, and then what? You think that they're going to be ethical? Nobody but a target who had to live with this type of abuse knows better than how they abuse once they get access. That's why the Apple is correct. You don't even bother to create the key, the master key, to begin with. Because you can't trust any of these people to say that once they had access to it, they would, they would not abuse that access or provide it to other fucking people. Look at all these goddamn fucking civilians who are looking in our computers exploiting our information, destroying fucking information that they don't have any business having access to. So don't give me this shit that the government or the Federal Bureau of Investigation is going to sit there and be ethical once they ever got access to the master key. So Democracy Now! too had, um, there was a former Central Intelligence agent. Now, he's, he's written a book. But the one thing, I don't agree with him because he believes that the CIA or the military should be taking over these, these type of surveillance. That's bullshit because the military is what's out of control right now. And when you got people from what, what Tim Cook said, he's getting tons of letters from military and law enforcement begging him not to provide that master key. That tells you something. People on the inside who still believe in the Constitution know that the corruption is so dirty that they don't even want them to have access to that master key. So this is um, Democracy Now! says, will the FBI take a bite out of Apple, former CIA agent on showdown between Apple and the government? Okay. 
In an interview last night on ABC, Apple CEO Tim Cook explained why his company is resisting a court order to help unlock the iPhone of one of San Bernardino attackers. In December, Sayed Rizan Farouk and his wife killed 14 people and injured 22 others. The two attackers were killed in a shootout with police. Cook said what the U.S. government was asking Apple to do was the, quote, software equivalent of cancer. This case is not about my phone. This case is about the future. What, what is at stake here is can the government compel Apple to write software that we believe would make hundreds of millions of customers vulnerable around the world, including the U.S.? The only way we know would be to write a piece of software that we view as sort of the software equivalent of cancer. We think it's bad news to write. We would never write it. We have never written it. And that is what is at stake here. The FBI says Apple is overstating the security risk to its devices and argues the litigation is limited. In an open letter earlier this week, FBI Director James Comey wrote, quote, the particular legal issue is actually quite narrow. We don't want to break anyone's encryption or set a master key loose on the land, he said. Apple phone systems have a function that automatically erases the access key and renders the phone permanently inaccessible after 10 failed attempts. To talk more about the case, we're joined by Barry Eisler, who has written about government surveillance in fictional form, but he's also a former CIA agent. Eisler is the author of a number of books, most recently, The God's Eye View. It's great to have you with us. So let's talk about um, what the government is doing and the pushback of uh, Apple. Yeah, um, I like Tim, Co- Tim Cook's metaphor. It's nice to see someone hitting back linguistically this way. Um, you would expect the FBI to say what it's saying. It's only about one phone. This is the kind of thing the government always says. And uh, I'm reminded of the time the CIA acknowledged that it had made two torture tapes. Fifteen months later, it acknowledged that it was, in fact, 92. In this case, the government said this is only going to be about one phone, and it took them only a day to say, did we say one phone? Actually, we're talking about 12. If you talk to any encryption or security expert anywhere, they'll all tell you that what the FBI is asking for is impossible. You can't create a backdoor for one phone without making all phones vulnerable. So that's one important issue here. But there's another one that I think is not adequately understood. This Julian Sanchez, a guy I follow pretty closely because he knows a lot about these things, works with the Cato Institute, put it, this isn't just about encryption. It's about conscription. And I, I wish people would understand this a little bit better. It's unprecedented for the government to be telling a private company what products it can create, what features it has to include in those products. As Tim Cook pointed out, where does this stop? What if the government said we want to have a feature on the iPhone that enables the FBI to turn on the iPhone camera, to turn on the iPhone microphone anytime we want? Would that also be okay? So uh, I hope this isn't going to happen. It's, uh, it's sort of odd to have to be championing the world's richest corporation in its fight with the government. I mean, they're asking the, the Apple to write a program which would then create a backdoor. Exactly. And it won't be unique to this one phone. It would be something that the government could use against any phone. And even if you think that the U.S. government, it's okay for the government to be able to break the encryption of anybody's phone, even if you trust the U.S. government and think the U.S. government has never lied to anyone, never abused its powers, even if you believe anything like that, what 
backdoor is accessible to the U.S. government would also be accessible to whatever is the American enemy du jour. It could be the Chinese government, uh, Russia, Iran, and of course, not just to state actors, but also to criminal groups and hackers. A vulnerability in a phone is not accessible to just one actor. But he killed 14 people, he and his wife, and they just want access to see if there's other plans. I mean, wh who knows what would be. So this is another thing the government is typically good at. It tries to find the most attractive fact pattern it can to use as the thin edge of a wedge that it can uh, that it can then use in other um, less obvious fact patterns. And I see this again and again. Um, people don't remember that well now, but Jose Padilla, I'm sure you guys remember, the so-called dirty bomber. I mean, Jose Padilla was accused of trying to create a, a radiological bomb and detonated in, uh, in Chicago, and a whole lot of people were going to die. So to keep us safe from that kind of thing, the government arrested him, held him on a Navy ship, offshored him, no due process, no charges, no trial, no access to a lawyer. It was unprecedented, but they were careful to choose at what for them, for them was an attractive fact pattern before doing something so unprecedented. They picked a scary-looking guy and accused him of doing scary things, and people didn't protest the way they would have. If, uh, if they had chosen someone a little bit different. So it's the same thing here. They're not doing this um, in the name of, I don't know, preventing someone from shoplifting or something like that. They've chosen a, a very attractive fact pattern so that they can say the talking points that you were just parroting, which is like, come on, this is just to keep us safe from the really scary people who want to kill us all in our beds and who in, indeed did kill a lot of people in San Bernardino. So to what extent do you think that accounts for public opinion? Because the recent Pew Center poll found that 51% of Americans think Apple should comply uh, uh, with the FBI and unlock the iPhone of uh, one of the perpetrators of the attacks. And only 38% said that uh, uh, the FBI should not, and the rest had no opinion. Yeah, which is not actually, which is a, not a bad response to anyone who thinks that Apple is doing this as some sort of publicity stunt. I mean, for the moment, anyway, more people think that Apple should comply then think that it shouldn't. I think the fact that so many people, actually that 38%, think it's a really bad idea for Apple to be forced to do this is in part a tribute to the educational value of the Snowden revelations and all the journalism that's been built on them. Because I'm pretty sure, can't really conduct this experiment, but I'm pretty sure that if it hadn't been for Snowden's revelations, the public would be focusing entirely on the keep us safe from the terrorists aspect of this whole thing and not on the, but this is going to destroy privacy. I mean, interestingly, Apple has made the iCloud available. It's not like they haven't done that. I mean, there have been many requests of uh, these different phone uh, manufacturers to get access to the iCloud. Right. And, I mean, the government can't just get access to it. They have to get permission. So they're making a distinction between the actual physical phone. Right. Apparently, the, they turned off the iCloud at some point. So it's what's remained on that phone since the point they turned it off. Right. So the idea here is that some of your data is not accessible even by the company that created the product. It's, it's on your local device, and no one else should have access to it but you. Um, Apple has, in fact, complied with the government uh, in the government's request to, to turn over data to which it has access. Maybe people might like that. They might not like it. My own feeling is, look, as long as it's pursuant to a warrant and it's not secret and it's out in the open, I can live with it. But the notion that now Apple is going to crack encryption that its users have come to rely on to keep their data private is, uh, is an entirely new thing. 
Well, I want to turn to comments made by Bill Gates, the co-founder of Microsoft. He was asked about the ongoing dispute between Apple and the FBI and said it was important to strike a balance between privacy and government access. Gates was speaking to Bloomberg. The extreme view that the government always gets everything, nobody supports that. Having the government be blind, people don't support that. I do believe that, that with the right safeguards, there are cases where the government on our behalf, like stopping uh, terrorism, which could get worse in the future, that that, that is valuable. But striking that, that balance, clearly the government's taken information historically and used it in ways that we didn't expect, going all the way back, say, to uh, the FBI under J. Edgar Hoover. So I, I'm hoping now we can have, have the discussion. I do believe there are sets of safeguards where the government shouldn't have to be completely blind. That was Bill Gates. It's interesting. He's so close to an epiphany. He talks about J. Edgar Hoover. Maybe he knows about COINTELPRO. He acknowledges that the government has abused powers that it's been given in the past. And so you think he's going in a certain direction with this. And then he just comes up with this platitude, which is we have to strike a balance. Like, who doesn't think that we, we shouldn't strike a balance? It's just meaningless. There's no one who, is, who would say, I don't think we need a balance. I think it's just one or the other. So I don't know. Maybe it's not a coincidence that Microsoft is a fading technology company. And Apple is uh, is a premier one. Microsoft has said in the past that 80 tech companies have cooperated. Well, I mean, WikiLeaks has said that 80 tech companies in the past have cooperated with the NSA, the National Security Agency, including Microsoft. Yes, so much of the of Snowden's revelations were about this very thing, and the fact that um, that the public knows about corporate cooperation with the government now is in part, I think, what has emboldened Apple to push back. Because again, if we didn't know about these things, I would expect that Apple would be quietly cooperating. There'd be no cost to their doing so. But they realize now that there's a significant constituency among their customers that wants robust privacy features in Apple products. And to please those customers, Apple realizes that in this public battle with the FBI, it can't just roll over and serve the FBI. Otherwise, it might turn into the next market. Hold on. I didn't play the other part. There's three parts to this. Well, let's turn to NSA whistleblower Edward Snowden. In a 2013 interview with The Guardian, just after his identity was revealed, Snowden explained why he risked his career to leak the documents. I think that the public is owed an explanation of the motivations behind the people who make these disclosures that are outside of the democratic model. When you are subverting the power of government, that, that's a fundamentally dangerous thing to democracy. And if you do that in secret consistently, you know, as the government does uh, when it wants to benefit from that secret action that it took, uh, it'll kind of give its, its officials a mandate to go, hey, you know, tell the press about this thing and that thing so the public is on our side. But they rarely, if ever, do that when an abuse occurs. That falls to uh, individual citizens, but they're typically maligned. You know, it, it becomes a thing that these people are against the country, they're against the government, but I'm not. I'm, I'm no different from anybody else. Uh, I don't have special skills. Uh, I, I'm just another guy who sits there day to day in the office, watches what's happening, what's happening, and goes, 
this is something that's not our place to decide. The public needs to decide whether these programs and policies are right or wrong. And I'm willing to go on the record to defend the authenticity of them and say, I didn't change these. I didn't modify the story. This is the truth. This is what's happening. You should decide whether we need to be doing this. That was NSA whistleblower Edward Snowden speaking in 2013. So, Barry Eisler, you begin your book with Edward Snowden. Could you talk about uh, that decision uh, to talk about uh, Edward Snowden? And also, the title of your book is The God's Eye View. Yeah. So, um, like all my fiction, but especially so in this case, um, it's grounded in things that are actually happening in the world. And when I first had the idea for this book, by the way, I, I had a notion for a pretty far-reaching surveillance program, and I thought it would make a good basis a good basis for a novel. My concern was that what I had in mind was going to be too far-reaching, and because my brand has a lot to do with realism, I thought people might say, come on, Barry, the government's not really doing all that. And while I was working on my previous book, which is kind of thinking about this next one, I was actually in Tokyo doing research, June 2013 is when Glenn Greenwald and Laura Poetry first broke, uh, first started breaking stories with The Guardian based on Snowden's revelations. And I was immediately electrified and I realized, oh my God, I was not going nearly far enough in what I had imagined. Now, I mean, what's interesting is you're a fiction writer here, right. but your background is CIA uh, in covert operations. Right. So you begin this book with uh, with. Poitras and Greenwald meeting with Snowden in Hong Kong, complete catastrophe for the intelligence agency here. They're woken up in the middle of the night. What do we do? And the discussion of just taking them all out, including uh, Ewan McCaskill, who is from The Guardian, who was with them, taking them out. But you do have a background in reality, which is in covert operations. So if you're asking me, have I ever heard the government give an order to kill a journalist, the answer is no. But I do know that increasingly the government equates journalism with terrorism, I mean explicitly. Um, And if we're using certain tools and tactics against terrorists, then it makes sense those things are going to migrate to other enemies of the state, right? In fact... Uh, I think that when you think about terrorist groups like ISIS and then power centers in countries like America, a group like ISIS is nothing but ISIS is nothing but upside to any political establishment figure who wants to increase his or her budget or up fear among the public so that the politician can gain more power and means more profits for corporations involved in the war machine. Really, nothing but upside. But dissident groups, student groups, and have war groups, civil rights activists represent a lot of downside. And this is and journalists most of all who are who are relying real journalists who are relying on whistleblowers and uh, and real leaks to carry out their journalism. So when I imagine how is the government going to respond to this kind of thing, I'm thinking, well, how does the government respond to uh, what sort of tools is it developed and has it deployed against the ostensible enemies of the government, and how is it going to deploy them against real enemies? How are you deployed in the CIA? I didn't do very much at the CIA, and whenever I say that, people are like, yeah, right. It's like when a presidential candidate says, you know, I have no intention of running for president. People are like, oh, come on, man. You know, when are you really going um, to? Really, I was there for barely three years. It was mostly training. Uh, it was a super interesting experience. I'm glad I had it, and uh, and it definitely informs everything I write about and hopefully makes the, the sort of um, uh, spycraft, ter- uh, 
counter-surveillance, uh, surveillance, all sorts of tradecraft and the mentality of spies, that sort of thing that I depict in my novels. Hopefully the experience I had with the CIA makes all that as realistic as possible, but but I, I wish I could stay on democracy now that I was involved in numerous coups and assassinations. It would be, it would be a really cool segment we're doing, but alas, it was mostly training. But one of the things that you've said that you learned at the CIA was that sometimes it pays to cover up the commission of a serious crime yeah. by confessing to a lesser one. Yes, and uh, it's funny how often I see that sort of thing played out in, uh, in national headlines. There are things they say at the CIA that are said partly in jest, but only partly. So uh, another one is um, it is better to seek forgiveness than ask permission. And, uh, and I see the government doing this sort of thing constantly. And, um, yeah, so, so some of these things you really do. Uh, another one is deny everything, admit nothing, make counter accusations. Keep that one in mind. You will see the government doing it. You'll see politicians doing it all the time. So the God's eye view, what is it? Well, I don't want to give away any spoilers, but God's eye is a program of far-reaching surveillance in the book. And, uh, this is a fiction book? Well, I have an 18-page bibliography at the end of the book, because I want people to know that if you don't follow these things closely, um, you might have you might have that reaction I was talking about earlier, which is you'll read the book and say, well, that was that was a fun, entertaining thriller. But come on, can the government really do these things? Is it really doing these things? And reviews thus far have been really gratifying for me because people do respond to the book the way I would hope they would respond to fiction. They enjoy it. It's gripping. It's, you're, they're on the edge of their seats. And then they say, and then I came to the bibliography and I realized, oh my God, all these things are real. They are real. I speculated a little bit about how the how a program like God's Eye would be deployed. But all the technologies I describe in the book, and there are some that, that will make your hair stand up, they're real. They're right. actually deployed. Can you hack into a car? Um, can you turn a microphone on, not just on a phone, but on all these personal assistant devices that are getting deployed in people's homes, baby cameras, um, closed circuit television all over the, yeah, um, uh, heart devices, pacemakers, these sorts of things. In my very first book, which I started writing in 1993, it was published in 2002, uh, Clean Kill in Tokyo, my uh, half-American, half-Japanese assassin, John Rain, shorted out a guy's pacemaker wirelessly. And at the time, there was no Bluetooth. It was all infrared. I was using infrared, but it was wireless. And I checked with a, a Harvard uh, cardiac a pacemaker specialist guy I lived with in college, actually. I said, could you really do this? And he's like, well, I, I guess so. Why would you want to? So people always ask me at the time. Now they know I'm a novelist. Anyway, um, yeah, it turns out you can absolutely do this, so much so that Dick Cheney is, in his memoirs acknowledged that he had his uh, heart doctor turn off the wireless feature on his pacemaker because of concerns that uh, that somebody might try to turn it off. I was going to say terrorists, but actually probably there are a lot of people who probably at one time or another considered you know, pressing the button on that. Well, very quickly before we conclude, I want to ask you about something you said earlier, that the government increasingly uh, equates journalism with terrorism. Yeah. How did you learn that? Um, just by observing. Um, I remember when uh, David Miranda was um, – was detained at Heathrow. I guess this was uh, about two years ago. Right. And uh, and I wondered why why is the government doing this? I mean, they must know. It's not like he's got the only copy of whatever it is they're looking for. So why do something like that? And I realized, look, this is a, this is basically a, a deny and disrupt operation. I mean, why does the government want uh, 
terrorists to know that it's into their cell phones, that it can track you by your cell phone use and probably put in a drone strike um, based on that information. In fact, we know that sort of thing goes on, whether it's a so-called signature strike where they don't know your identity or where they do. Why do they do that? Is it to make terrorists unable to communicate? No, it won't have that effect. It's to make it more difficult for them to communicate, to make plotting uh, whatever the terrorists are trying to plot slower and harder and uh, and and that's why the government does these things. So I thought, why detain this guy? Well, Under the, the terrorist act. Yeah, I know. So this is another thank you. That is uh, the quintessential example of like, oh, wow, so journalists really are literally terrorists, in this case to the U.K. government, but in cooperation um, with the American government. So they're not going to stop journalists from communicating by this, but it's a kind of signal. They know that for the most sensitive things that journalists are don't trust their cell phones and they're using human couriers. So what do you do? You let them know even human couriers are not going to be safe for you, deny and disrupt. I wanted to end by asking you a question that uh, our colleague Jeremy Scale asked you last night in a Q&A that you had here in New York, and it's about something that the Clinton campaign is trying to make a big deal of, something Bernie Sanders said decades ago, oh, yeah. calling the CIA a dangerous institution that has got to go. He said this in yeah. 1974. Now, yeah. he is not saying that today. Uh, these days, uh, he talks about more oversight for the agency. Right. But as a former um, person in covert yeah. operations at the CIA, um, do you share his view more, the one he expresses today, more oversight, or the one he expressed 40 years ago, do away with the CIA? Yeah, I would say first that people need to understand Sanders is not an outlier in calling for the abolishment of the CIA. Uh, President Truman said he'd get rid of the agency. John F. Kennedy famously said he would shatter the organization to a thousand pieces and scatter it to the winds if following the bad pigs. A lot. Daniel Moynihan said, oh my God, we're not getting our money's worth. This thing is doing more harm than good. Yeah, Senator, uh, former Senator Moynihan. So there have been a lot of prominent people who've had uh, who have been in a position to weigh the costs and benefits of the CIA's existence and have come out thinking that, on balance, national security would be improved if we actually just didn't have a CIA. So that is a perfectly defensible and respectable position. Um, that's one thing. The other thing is, look, at a minimum, if I were advising Sanders today, I would say, at a minimum, you've got to detach the covert action arm from the intelligence gathering and analysis arm it's just these are two things that inherently don't function well together. Just as the NSA is tasked with, on the one hand, destroying encryption, on, on the other hand, there's another part of the organization that is tasked ostensibly with improving encryption. You can't put that's like putting a humidifier and a dehumidifier in the room and telling them about it, battle it out. It's just like it doesn't work and not going to get good results. And so with the agency, the covert military arm of the agency, um, really should be put in the military. It shouldn't be in a position to interfere with the objectivity of intelligence analysis that our policymakers rely on. Well, Barry, I I'd like to ask you to stay afterwards so we can continue this conversation. Uh, he is author of The God's Eye View. He's a New York Times best-selling author, and he is a former um, CIA agent. Uh, we will continue the conversation after the show is posted. So here's the final part of it. But I don't agree with him by giving the covert operations to the military because they're already out of control. That has to do with the National Security Agency and all the spying that, they were do that they've been doing. So you kind of want to have these, you know, it's like a check and balance. Not that I trust the CIA. <laughs> what did I get when I called the, the um, bureau person when I was living in Rome? 
they they patch me in the embassy patch me into the central intelligence agency because they <laughs> do the international side of it. So I'm talking to the the guy that's you know what do you call it when they're on duty, and he he's all he said to me was good luck. <laughs> he thanks. You're a central intelligence agency. You got people doing with with military grade weapons fucking around Europe, and all you can tell me is good luck. So I managed to get through to the Central Intelligence Agency when I was living in Rome because that's what they do. The bureau, it wasn't the bureau chief, but it was one of the bureau people because I had gone to the American Embassy in Rome and I went to the consulate in Florence. So I'm I'm documented. I'm documented globally in terms of complaining about this fucking targeting shit. So we don't only have domestic terrorism. I can prove that it's international. Because I was targeted throughout different areas of Europe, mainly all the allied countries. So I don't agree with him on that. And there were articles that came out um, in the 2010 Mark Mazzetti about the covert actions of the special Joint Special Operation uh, JSOC, Joint Special Operation Command, and they these these are little asymmetrical warfare teams. So you have to understand that conventional warfare is like sending a couple hundred thousand troops to some area and you're fighting, right? Unconventional warfare is kind of what terrorists do. There are these small pockets of uh, of people, so it's asymmetrical warfare, unconventional warfare. And that's what these JSOC teams are. They're joint special operations, which means Army, Navy, you know, Air Force, Marines, private security, and then you have these five core capabilities that you do and you're little asymmetrical warfare teams. But what they didn't have was they didn't have sufficiently trained people in the five core military capabilities. So I believe that they've been using American soil and European soil as their their training ground. How do you radicalize people? How do you get them to believe your story and turn against that, that person that they say is the enemy? So you're letting these people have real-time real um, um, uh, training. What else do we have in America? We're a melting pot of diversity. Social economics, religious. Now you know how to manipulate uh, predominantly white Christian neighborhoods. Now you know how to predom- now you know how to manipulate and get them to turn against that solo target that they consider the you know the target practice. How to manipulate people in a Latino community or an Asian community or African American community. How to manipulate multimillionaires to do your bidding. How to, how to go into multicultural areas that are more liberal-minded that might not think that that was right and manipulate those people under different narratives to believe it's okay to target that person. And then you put together a guidebook so that you could drop ship anywhere across the globe, manipulate those communities or those areas to turn against whomever they want to and then put in their puppet people. and giving the real people who are being recruited an opportunity to train in real time, where you don't have to learn a language first because we're culturally diverse here. Then if you, then you ship them overseas, then they already know what to do. And you've got a guidebook. Oh, let's see, uh, we're in this kind of community. We've got these kind of people. Okay, look at the guidebook. Okay, well, these type of tactics work in order to manipulate those people. So that's why I say that's what our targeting is about. 
radicalizing people into extremism to do your bidding so that they'll, they'll act upon and against whomever they claim the adversary is, right, without question, without reservation, without remorse, and most of all, without regard to the human life and or humanity of that targeted person or group. It's all about manipulating people to do the bidding for you while they keep their hands clean. Using American soil as our training facility. Field testing, weapons, technology. Putting in the hands of people that have been radicalized so they don't give a shit because they taught them how to look at people in a dehumanized manner. Thinking it's one big fucking joke. But they're not the ones taking the hits. It's like that one, that, that, that perpetrator who will say, well, it doesn't really matter. Because I was shocked once, and it didn't hurt that bad. But what that ignorant, dumbass motherfucker perpetrator doesn't understand is that you're not the only person during the course of that day who pushed that button that sent that pulse shock right through my human biology. So you try getting hit a hundred times a day. And I guarantee you won't be saying the same thing. Well, it wasn't that bad. But see, all they know is what their handlers tell them. And as long as they're good manipulators, they'll keep on believing what the outside has to say. And they use people in positions of power, authority, and or expertise to manipulate. So how does 51% of Americans say it's okay or why doesn't Apple just give the FBI the capacity to break into that one phone? And they're so indoctrinated into a false belief system that they don't even know what the truth is anymore. They think a target doesn't know the truth But we live in the reality of all the abuse of power. Every day. You get someone who you never believe a little bit of access to power and they turn into bloodthirsty vigilantes or power-obsessed people. That's why that key should never be created. Period. So let me play the final part to this former CIA agent, Barry Eisler, turned writer. But I do not agree with him because the Defense Intelligence Agency, and this is where I I figured it out, in reference to the training, because, you know, I told you that they use us for, for, for target practice and training. But um, I'll give you a link to this one.
so this was an article. See, I'm, I'm like a I'm like a fucking encyclopedia, man, because I did my homework. Um, this was from 2000 December 2010 was the Mark Mazzetti article from New York Times, and I, I quote that one all the time. That was, that's when the first term information operation red flagged me, or it, it, it allowed me to understand what the operations were about and what they were doing on American soil against their own people, using psyops against the, the, the target audience, which is the general public, and using targets for target practice, knowing that we were innocent to begin with. And so that talked about clandestine operations and moving away from the, the, the military side. The Department of Defense wants to do more of the clandestine stuff that, was, that used to be tasked with the Central Intelligence Agency. So you got all these dickwads, you know, jockeying for position. But there was also something that came out, and this was, this was more validation for me after I did the, the one-stop shop about what they were doing on American soil and that they were training personnel. So in 2012, December 1st, 2012, Greg Miller of the Washington Post, the Pentagon will send hundreds of additional spies overseas as part of an ambitious plan to assemble an espionage network that rivals the CIA in size, U.S. officials said. The project is aimed at transforming the Defense Intelligence Agency, which has been dominated for the past decade by demands of two wars into a spy service focused on emerging threats and more closely aligned with the CIA and elite military commando units. The elite military commando units are JSOC, Joint Special Operation Command, or Joint Special Operation Forces. So when the expansion is complete, the DIA, or Defense Intelligence Agency, is expected to have as many as 1,600 collectors in positions around the world, an unprecedented total for an agency whose presence abroad numbered in the triple digits in recent years. The total includes military attaches and others who do not work undercover, but United States officials said the growth will be driven over a five-year period by the development of a new generation of clandestine operations. Okay? So for my website, my bottom line was um, my theory on gang, you know, organized talking is that target practice for future domestic and global operations and to recruit and train the new generation of operative spies and assassins. Merrill's published in 11. I did one-stop shop in 10. Target practice. What does this say? Well, this was another validation for me. You're recruiting people that's going to rival the Central Intelligence Agency as the boots on the ground, covert operations, okay? When the expansion is complete, the Defense Intelligence Agency is expected to have as many as 1,600 collectors in positions around the world, an unprecedented total for an agency whose presence abroad numbered in the triple digits in recent years. The total includes military attaches and others who, work, who do not who do not work undercover, but U.S. officials said the growth will be driven over a five-year period 
by the development of a new generation of clandestine operatives. They will be trained by the CIA and often work with the United States Joint Special Operation Command, or JSOC, but they will get their spying assignments from the Department of Defense. Among the Pentagon's top intelligence priorities, officials said, are Islamist militant groups in Africa, weapons transfers by North Korea and Iran, and military modernization underway in China. So, during 2012, in 2013, I moved to L.A., you got how many million, 12 million people and what, 3.7 million people in just the city of L.A. alone. There's plenty of rentals. There should be plenty of rentals all over. <clears throat> I sent out like 50 or more for room rentals. I only got two calls back and the one place they wanted me was in Koreatown. Why? Well, what better place to start recruiting than first and second generations who are fluent in the language, who know the culture, and who look the part. All you need to do is give them access to the gizmos and gadgets. So you, they were recruiting real people under the auspices of this organized community-based bullshit. So was I, was I influenced to go to L.A.? Probably. Because you know they know how to do that. But I also got to get, get in the face of LAPD and make sure that I redocumented information about targeting. So what do they need? Well, the Cape, uh, Koreatown in Los Angeles is probably the biggest in the nation. Fluent language, people. You don't have to go through all the training about culture and everything because they're already the part. All you need to do is train them on the other stuff, like the gizmos and gadgets. Then you got people who you could ship overseas as a part of what? Defense intelligence? Gives law enforcement an opportunity to infiltrate the neighborhood and pick their snitches, your neighborhood snitches. So a lot of times it's strategic where I've been placed. When I lived in Florence, Italy, of all places that I was renting before I moved down towards uh, past Rome in Gaeta, which was a military, you know, so I can tell that there's influencing going on. They placed me smack dab in the middle of a Somalian, the Somalian community in Florence, Italy. Somalia. That I was surrounded by Somalians. That was where they congregated in Italy. Well, what better place to set up shop? And because I would use the, I didn't have um, uh, internet access, so I go to those internet cafes. When I wanted to call internationally or back to the United States, I would go to those places where they have these phone booths so you can make international calls. That was all within the Somali community. So what say they tell you, oh, she's the enemy. You guys need to monitor her. They're thinking they're doing something right, and they're setting up surveillance in the Somalian community of Florence, Italy. They put me in places where they need me to be. So why of all the places I decide to live in Italy, I go to Gaeta? What is in Gaeta? NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, 
the USS Mount Whitney. What the fuck's the USS Mount Whitney? It's one of the most technologically advanced command and control land, sea, and air communication ships. Well, what is all this targeting with frequencies but portions of communication? What else is over there? The Italian Navy. I'm thinking I'm picking these areas. Oh, there's some Americans here so I could talk to them. They blasted the shit out of me in Italy. What do they get? They get training. What do you have? NATO. So it wasn't necessarily that I picked these places so much as I was being influenced to go to these places because they have their own objectives to meet. And they didn't give a flying fucking shit what was happening to me so long as they met their fucking military goddamn fucking objectives. So that's why I don't talk out my ass. I talk as the victim of what they've abused and what they've done. So let me go to this final segment over here. I did my homework. I do know what the fuck I'm talking about. I don't live in a fantasy world of conspiracy fucking theories. This is a pure and concentrated Title 18 conspiracy in the felony of a United States code. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh with part two of our interview with the thriller writer, the New York Times bestselling author, Barry Eisler. His latest book is called The God's Eye View. Now, while it is fiction, he had his own experiences within the CIA and the covert wing of the Central Intelligence Agency. So there's a lot here. Well, you call it, Barry, reality-based. Um. You've written a number of books um, that um, have made it to all levels of the New York Times bestseller list. And while at the time they may have seemed speculative, so many of them have proven to be true. Talk about a clean kill in Tokyo, which you published, what, like 13, 14 years ago, um, where you write about uh, remotely hacking the pacemaker and so many other things, and go through a lonely resurrection and fault line in London Twist, how what you deem them might be um, a little futuristic actually panned out. Yeah, there have been a lot of things I've written about that um, surprisingly and somewhat depressingly have actually turned out to be true. The one about hacking a pacemaker I did in my first book in 2002 turns out to be the case. I mentioned earlier Dick Cheney had his doctor turn the wireless accessibility feature in his pacemaker off. And there's been a lot of, um, a lot of studies now about vulnerability of not just medical devices, but of cars and even airplanes, because everything is wired now. 
probably the closest I think I've ever come to something that turned out to be true was in my third book, which I was writing in 2004. There's a CIA guy who's explaining to my contract assassin, John Rain, that the government has this thing they call a list. It's a list of terror tar- terrorist targets that the government wants to take out. And the guy, my CIA guy, um, Kamasaki, says there's, of course, nobody calls this thing an assassination list. That would be gauche and would be hard to explain in front of some outraged com- uh, congressional committee down the road. What we call it is um, a disposition list. And then uh, a couple years ago, it turns out that the White House has Terror Tuesdays, and what they call their assassination list is the disposition matrix. And I was like, damn, I'm even getting the, I'm almost getting the nomenclature right. But yeah, that's the government, right? They're never going to call it a kill list. In fact, we don't even do assassinations. We have targeted killings. There are so many words like that that the government uses to obscure what's really going on. You know, if we wind up making war another war in Libya, it's not going to be a war. It'll just be an intervention. We never call these things what they really are. So that was another one that... Um, that I was surprised to get right. My second book, uh, Alone the Resurrection, published in 2003, I was talking about uh, Tokyo Electric Power Company, TEPCO, and the kind of uh, corruption and cover-ups they were using to control uh, shoddy work on the nuclear reactors. And then, of course, there was the 2011 tsunami and meltdown at Fukushima uh, nuclear reactor, and it turned out that, yeah, TEPCO was doing all this kind of stuff. So I, I tell people a lot of times that if you read News closely if you watch shows like Democracy Now and some other good ones, and you use yep. in ways that will allow you to predict in somewhat depressing fashion what the government is really up to. And you talked about facial recognition. Yeah, I'm no facial recognition expert, but there have been some great articles about it. Um, Fusion wrote about this uh, about a year ago uh, as part of my bibliography. This technology gets better and better. I mean, if, if you think about like speech recognition, years ago it was a little bit clunky. Now it's really, really good. Facial recognition is the same. The problem with facial recognition, as I understand it, is false positives. So it's hard to weed those out. But the, tech, but the technology keeps getting more accurate. And if you <coughs> facial recognition, as facial recognition technology grows increasingly robust and is paired with the government's efforts to hack into closed-circuit television systems and all sorts of monitors, um, all sorts of cameras, for example, the ones on the laptops you guys have right here on your desk. You really might want to put stickies over those, um, over those cameras, right? But when it gets to the point where the government has access to cameras deployed in, uh, in public spaces all over the world and pairs that with facial recognition technology, we're going to be living in a world that is reminiscent of Minority Report. And if we do wind up living in that world as, as Edward Snowden was saying in a clip you played earlier. I personally don't think that would be a good thing, but at the very least, we all also said that no one serves up great plots for thriller writers like the U.S. government. So is the government the principal source of all of these different books that you've written? Yeah, yeah as I said, it's, it's kind of depressing, again, as an American citizen, but I'm embarrassed also to admit that as a thriller writer, every time the government does some crazy thing, I'm like, oh, my God, my next book. I mean, when, when uh, Glenn Greenwald and Laura Portress first started reporting on the Snowden revelations, I was like, this is it. This is my book. So thank you, Edward Snowden. I mean, you helped me write a really great book. Um, I remember reading in 2002 
when the CIA essentially took a public bow for blowing up some uh, suspected terrorists, which the government never calls suspected terrorists, by the way. They're always just terrorists. Blowing up a car full of suspected terrorists in Yemen, including an American citizen. And that's when I got the idea for this list. I thought, wow, the rules have really changed post-9-11. The government is now um, conducting assassinations, sorry, targeted killings of, uh, of people, including American citizens, no due process whatsoever, no judicial judicial process. They must have some sort of list. Who would they want to kill? How would my guy, John Rainey? So, yeah, every time the government does a new crazy thing, it's just like another thought or another one of my books. Well, Barry, I'm thank you for being with us. And for the latest book, The God's Eye View. New York Times best-selling author and former CIA agent in the covert division of the CIA, Barry Eisler. This is Democracy Now! I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Shea. That was the final part. Uh, it's funny how he told them to cover their cameras. I remember when they went live in 2006, I unplugged all my Wi-Fi, anything wireless, and then I, I was putting, I put the um, tape over my my <laughs> laptop and everything, and people used to say, why do you do that? I said, because they can see through it. And they're like, oh, you're just being paranoid. I'm like, no, I'm telling you. They can they can see. They're listening in. Well, that, they don't do that. That's just in movies. No, I'm telling you, they have the capability to do these things. And this was back in 2006, 2007. And then all of it came out. They They can do all of it. You know how some of the targets used to talk, there's some with my appliances. You know, they're talking about appliances and, and uh, all these, you know, technologies and how are they doing that with your appliances and stuff. Your targets talk, talked about it all the time. And then Keith Alexander sitting there going, one day we're going to spy on you through your refrigerator because they're putting chips in everything that they can tap into. And we were being called all kinds of names for telling the truth because they're field testing everything. Can we listen into them by, you know, putting something on their appliance? Can you put a transducer on there so it'll create a field of energy? Never lied, always consistent. And it just keeps coming out. Like I said, that was December something, that article about the, the clandestine agencies. I published in 2010, the website in 2000, early 2012, even before that Washington Post article about the Defense Intelligence Agency. I was already nailing what was happening. Not because I have psychic fucking abilities, but a victim of a crime who didn't take the standardized narrative and propaganda and took the time to do the research to say how the fuck or what the fuck are they doing and which agencies are involved with it. And it was always went back to the military from day one. Only the military would have these kind of capabilities to do this. Period. Or their corporate counterparts and weapons manufacturers So as I go back to this thing with Apple, do not create that key, period. Even if you're compelled to do it, say you can't. Take years and years and years 
Even if you figure it out, don't say you figured it out and just take your sweet-ass fucking time. Oh, we can't figure it out. Don't give these guys any more access to more weapons that are fucking up the security of this nation. They pose the greatest threat to national security. Their civilian perpetrator community poses the greatest threat to national security. So thank you, Apple, for stepping up to the plate. And I hope other tech companies in Silicon Valley start doing the same thing because you would be a force to be reckoned with. Tell these guys to shove it up their fucking asses and get a goddamn fucking warrant. And no, you're not going to break encryption so they could spy on everybody without due process. <laughs> 